Here we go. Uh, January 20th, uh, 2013, lecture discussion number 95 on the book of Romans. Uh, Lori wanted me to write a note here uh, asking, uh, asking me, all of us really, to, to thank you folks on the Internet for your support uh, with regard to the Internet ministry and the CD ministry. Uh, it's amazing what you do, and um, uh, you would be, uh, be really excited to see sometimes uh, the, the impact that our little operation is having out there. And, uh, I was looking the other day. We have some lectures now that have been downloaded over 2,000 times which is really amazing, and if you added up uh, all the different sites we, we have, oh my goodness, it's hard to know. I, I don't think I could count it. You'll have to ask Dave. So those of you who are uh, supporting us out there in the uh, Internet, and we really very much appreciate you and, and what you've done, and thank you for writing us. Uh, that's a big deal to us is to get letters. Anyway, again, January twentieth, two 2013, lecture discussion number 95. Now, because it is necessary to shorten today's lecture uh, due to scheduling conflicts with respect to the facility here, I thought I would uh, revisit uh, and raise those points that require a great deal more deliberation than uh, usual and that I haven't had time really to do, and so I'm going to take this opportunity. Uh, I'm not going to do our usual review that I do every uh, Sunday but um, for those who were here last Sunday, uh, you may remember what we covered last week. Uh, we uh, covered primarily the de declaration that God makes to and about Adam. So God makes something, he says something about Adam, um, and he says it to Adam in front of a vast audience of uh, angelic hosts. And uh, it's probably better described as a portrayal or a characteristic of Adam's status. Um, in other words, it's it really is descriptive of Adam, and he has, God is describing Adam as Genesis 3.22 is, uh, is where it's at, and unfortunately that is often overlooked at, as a description. Uh, many people think it's something bad, and, and of course I covered that last week. It's certainly not that. Uh, and please begin to evaluate it from the perspective that it isn't bad. It's actually powerful. An extraordinary. Genesis 3.22, then, and I'll stop there, then, so that means after something, a whole bunch of somethings occurred, and after they were all complete, then the Lord God, the Lord God said. Okay? So, there is your sentence, half of it. After something of a great significance occurred, then the Lord God said something. In other words, after the trial of Adam and Eve, first after the investigation or the arrest of Adam and Eve, if you will, I want to call it that, but after the arrest and the investigation and then after the trial and after their confessions because they both confess and after their sentencing or the sentencing of not just them but of Satan and after Adam renames the woman life, very important. And then after the slaying of the innocent animals and their coverings uh, replacing, replacing the fig garments. So after they were slain, the innocent animals, and the removal and the replacement of the fig garments with the blood covering, and then the recovering or the regarmenting uh, re or the reclothing, if you will, of Adam and Eve, then uh, and only then the Lord God said. So all of that. Then, the Lord God said. So all of that led to this 
great statement. He says this about Adam. Behold. And by the way, I never do that word justice. Who said behold? God said it. When he says behold, he's trying to say to you, he's, uh, you he wants you to recognize that something unbelievable is going to be said next. A truth that has so much depth and complexity, you could spend the rest of your life trying to figure it out, and you wouldn't figure it all out. But you'll get some of it, if not most of it, and that's what he's trying to tell you. This is a behold. Always stop when you see behold. How loud do you think he said it? He's loud. Read your Exodus. He's terrifyingly loud. That's how loud behold was. Who was listening? Everything was listening. Who is that? That's the, all the animals and all the angelic hosts. They were all listening and he's about to tell them something about Adam. That's unbelievable, really. Behold, he says, very loud. I won't do it justice, so I won't scream. Someday I'll bring my trumpet. By the way, I'm making great promise with my trumpet. And my trumpet teacher had something very funny to tell me the other day. He said, just play. He just, insert your word. Just play the thing. That he said, thank you for paying me for this. Yeah. I told him, I, it's just very funny, you had to be there, but it was very valuable to me. Uh, and uh, I, I finally, he told me, I told him a long time ago, if you get me to where you're trying to get me, I will bring you in here so everyone can see you. And he's looking forward to that. And we, we're making great progress finally after all these uh, months of sucking. Sorry, I shouldn't say that. Behold, behold, the Man, that is amazing right there. The man has become. What's implied by the word become? Behold, listen to me, God is saying. Listen to me. This is important. The man has become like one of us. And I capitalized one of us on purpose because they demand to be capitalized. Speaking about the triune Godhead. Adam has become like one of us. Is it a good thing to become like one of the Godhead? Who are they? Who is, who is they? That's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Or if you will, it is the Lord God. It is the angel of the Lord God. It is the spirit of the Lord God. All one God, three manifestations. The man has become like one of us. I submit again that God said this with his usual extraordinarily loud voice, which means all of creation heard it. Every creature heard it. And the angelic host especially heard it because it was directed at them. So Adam has three extraordinary things said about him in Scripture. Okay? He is called one of them. This one here. He is like 
one of the us. And I immediately asked, which one is he like? Number two, that's of course what we just covered in Genesis 3.22. He is a type of Christ. That helps you solve number one, by the way, doesn't it? And that is Romans 5.14. And number three, he is never deceived. I will put not deceived, but I'm going to make the case about never deceived as we go. He is not deceived, 1 Timothy 2.14, right? So there are three, those are the three things that are said about Adam in the Bible. He is like one of the us. He is a type of Jesus Christ himself. In other words, he is a picture. His life is a picture. What he has done testifies of Christ, and he is never deceived. Is that good? That's good. That's really good. The woman, she was deceived. The angels were deceived. Adam, not deceived. By the way, Satan deceived? Who deceived Satan? You can make the case that Satan might have deceived himself. I've heard that case. I don't think Satan deceived himself. I think Satan deceived the angels. I think he deceived every single one of the us in this room. He has no trouble with that. He certainly deceived Eve, but he did not deceive Adam. I don't think he deceived himself. So we'll get into that as we go along. But there's this relationship between the two kings of Eden, right? Satan is the first king of Eden. Adam is the second king of Eden. Or if you will, Satan is the king of the mineral Eden. And Adam is the king of the organic Eden. And that is a study of Ezekiel 28, as you all know. But anyway, uh, later on that with, with Satan and Adam, we'll get to that. These two one is the deceiver, the other is the not deceived, and that makes them very unique. Okay, But again, the woman was deceived, the angels were deceived, but not Adam. Adam not deceived. So that raises the obvious questions, doesn't it? Which one of us, of the us, is Adam like? How is Adam a type of Christ? And then, of course, not deceived about what specifically? What is it that Adam is not deceived about exactly? Again, it bears repeating. Only Adam has this title that he is like one of the us. Like one of us. He's the only one in all of Scripture that has that title. That designation given to him by God himself at the end of the legal procedures, if you will, the trial procedures. And by the way, I have that trial. Let's just cover this. I have a trial in the book of Genesis at almost the beginning, don't I, in Genesis 3. I have a trial where I have defendants. I have witnesses all gathered around. I have a sentence. I have, in this case, I have a, uh, a covering, a pardon, don't I? I have this great testimony about one of the defendants. The other defendant is named Life. That's quite a trial. Any other trials that God puts on? I got one in Genesis. Where I got another? I got another one somewhere? Where I got a whole bunch of people gathered around? Yeah, that's how this all ends, doesn't it? The great white throne. 
There's a relationship between the trial of Adam and Eve and the great white throne judgment. You will begin to see that they are very, very similar. The outcome's a little tough for some, but only because they plead not guilty. It is a mistake to plead not guilty in front of God. It's a serious error in judgment. But anyway, Adam is said to know the difference. He is like one of us because Adam knows the difference between he knows good from evil. That's what God says about him. He says he is like one of us because he can tell the difference from between good and evil. He knows good from evil. Adam knows the difference. So again, the obvious question, does anyone else know the difference now apart from God? Who is he saying it's in front of? What's the implication? He sets every, everybody's there watching the trial. He's now pronouncing Adam as the one who has become like one of us and that Adam knows the difference between good and evil. Does, he, he says the man does, by the way. So who else is there just standing next to him, by the way? Just Eve is. The woman is. What's implied? Why didn't he say they have become like one of us? He doesn't. He says only the man. And then he also says only the man out of all of this creation knows the difference between good and evil. He can tell evil from good. Good from evil. He can do that. The rest of you, by implication, can't do it. How's Adam doing so far in the story? Pretty strong, Adam is. You buy those silly books that says Adam is an idiot. Those were written by an idiot. That makes it easy. You can, you can buy them. I have them. Just whatever you do, don't pay full price. Now, it seems apparent that only Adam knows the difference between good and evil outside of God, which implies that, that Satan doesn't know the difference. That's a big deal. Now you're on your way to find out or figuring out what specific issue this is. What is God addressing here? It, I think he's got a specific issue when he says, Adam knows something that you don't know. He can figure something out, or he figured something out that you haven't figured out. You didn't figure it out. The woman certainly didn't figure it out. None of the angelic host figured it out, but Adam figured it out. And I believe that this is the Genesis 15, Matthew 4, Matthew 26 through 36, um, I'm sorry, Matthew 26, 36 through 56 subject. This is the covenant of the burning, smoking furnace and the light or the burning lamp or the lighted lamp. So I have the smoking furnace and the lighted lamp passing between the divided animals in Genesis 15. This is also what's going on in Gethsemane when Christ has the cup in front of him and says, let this cup pass. Um, This is uh, the testing of Christ, if you will, where Christ and Satan have this uh, chess game, for lack of a better word, even though playing chess with God is a B is not going to make you much money, and it didn't uh, in that case, but uh, Satan did not know that that was God in front of him. There are things that Satan has not figured out that obviously Adam did figure out, because God says so right here. 
I believe that this is the solution to free will sin. If you've listened to me before, you know that Satan, that it's called the abundance of your traffic. He went one at a time to each and every angel. If, if I think almost individually, that seems to be implied. That's the abundance of your traffic with a lie, with one lie that worked on almost every single one of them, if not every single one of them. Now, not all fell, but we don't know how many that lie worked on. It certainly shook them all, and I, I can tell you that because he says, Behold, the man has become like one of us. And the one of us isn't including the angelic host. That's the triune Godhead. So that means that God was what about the time he makes that declaration with regard to knowing the difference between good and evil? Pretty much all alone, wasn't he? So, this is about the solution to free will sin. Satan went to each and every angel with a lie where he said, uh, and I can prove it, by the way, with what he does with Eve as well, and what he's done to you, what he's done to me. We're, if we're, we're consistently suckers for this lie. We fall for it every single time. Think of it as three-card Monty, if you will. I mean, nothing. find the ace of spades. Okay, put your two dollars down, and you think you're going to pick the right card, and you always get the wrong card. Satan has got us all, but he didn't get Adam. And that's an extraordinary thing. How smart is Adam? But Satan went to each and every angel with his first lie, and that lie was is that God could not solve the. Uh, the conflict that Satan said existed between your free will and sin. Because he would say to them that the only evidence that you have free will is the ability to reject God, to be disobedient. Obedience is not evidence of free will. and God can't solve it. Because if you really don't have free will then God is the author of sin and is not good and has no goodness. <coughs> Those lectures are all over the place. You've all heard me. I don't want to keep going over them. I'm just doing it today because we have to really hurry and I want to get to the buffet just like the rest of you. But that's what Adam deceived the angels with and that's what he deceived Eve with is this solution to free will sin and, good, and the goodness of God. In other words, the goodness of God versus the origin of evil, if you want to think of it that way. And Adam was never fooled by it, never fooled. And God makes certain that all who could hear that heard it. The implication being that all of the angelic host had not done so well. And I want you to think about how they responded to it, because I have two groups for sure. I have the fallen angels and I have the unfallen angels. And when they all learn the same thing, that... The man was not fooled, never deceived. When they all learned that, what impact did that have on them? I think the unfallen, for sure, were shamed. The, uh, the fallen, for sure, didn't care, had no remorse. But God made certain that all who could hear heard. And I want you to consider the response of Eve in light of Genesis 3.5. I'll read it here. In just, well, I'll read it right now. Why not? Just go in order. How about that for an idea? We'll go in order. See if I can. I want you to think about when Eve heard God say, the man is like one of us. 
Then let's go to 3, 4 of Genesis. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God. Did she make it? No. Who became like God? Adam. So, obviously, what's the difference between Adam and Eve? If you go to Isaiah 14, 12 through 14, what, what does Satan say there? I'm going to be, I'm going to be like God. And if he, he said it to everybody. And God said, no, not the woman, not the angel, certainly not Satan, but Adam has become like one of us. That becomes very important to know. Note also that the three things of Adam, the like one of us, one of the us, I always put the the in there so you'll know that uh, the possibility exists for that to be the case, and I think it is, especially because of Romans 5.14, where Adam is identified specifically as a type of Christ. Him and Moses have that uh, designation, by the way. But anyway... Those three, like one of the us, the type of Christ, and the not deceived, those guys, those three things, if you will, I shouldn't have called them guys, but those three attributes of Adam are interdependent, not independent, but interdependent or codependent parts of a whole. They're a triad, three parts connected and affected, affecting the other parts. Uh, you see, Adam was steadfast, absolutely steadfast, did not waver in his belief in the goodness of God. He knew God was good. That's how we started. If you look at my rules for reading Scripture, that's one of my rules. Number one rule, Christ is always God. Don't ever read the Bible and ever draw a conclusion that Christ is not omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent God ever. He's always that. He can't help but be that. If you ever have a position that he's not that, then what's the problem? You be wrong. The other thing I say in those rules is God is always good. Can't His goodness cannot ever be there. Don't have a position that God is not good. We constantly read the Bible with an ignorant viewpoint, and we never get the full story because we always say, well, why did he kill those poor people? He's always good. Figure out why you can't figure out why he's good there. Recently, I asked somebody that wrote me a letter, and I said, uh, um, if he doesn't intervene on the, on the behalf of his salvation system, in other words, if he allows you to kill all his Christians and all his prophets and all his priests, and you kill them all, uh, and he doesn't ever stop you, is that good? No, because inside of his priests and inside of his prophets, and inside of his church is the message of his salvation, which is good. Does the church do a good job? No. The church is awful. The church is good at being awful. Corrupt. I've just, people ask me all the time, uh, what do you do for a living? I, I tell them I frame houses. I never tell them I'm a pastor. You know why? I'm ashamed of the profession. It is a corrupt, money-grubbing, 
they never get between a pastor and a $10 bill. You're going to get yourself killed. Just how it is. And I don't know what to do about it. I can't stop it. It is what it is. Makes me sick. Physically, it does make me sick. So I always tell them um, uh, anything. They find out what I do later, and they go, why didn't you tell me? I said, I didn't want you to hate me. (laughs) But Adam, he knew that God, he was steadfast in his belief that there was this goodness in God that is always there. And that's how he solves this problem. That's how he's not deceived. He started with God is doing something good. And being the author of evil is not good. Giving free will is good. Somehow there's a solution to it. That's how he began. Steadfast in his belief in the goodness of God and in the omnipotence, the omnipresence, and the omniscience of God. Genesis 3, if nothing else, is a marvelous testimony of Adam's resolute faith in God's goodness, in his omniscience, his omnipotence, and his omnipresence. Adam believed that. He knew it was true. How did he know it? It never occurred to him that it wasn't true. I will also make the case that Genesis 3, 20 through 24 is proof of Adam's ability to reason above the angelic level. I've already done a little of that. I hope you know. Saw it. Or heard it. Figured out what I'm doing. In other words, Adam discerned things, solved things, figured things out that no one else, including Satan, figured out up to this point. When this was said about Adam, that was a stunning thing. That was an an indication that Adam was now alone in all of the universe of every free will being. Again, I think Satan knew he was lying, but I don't think he was able to solve his own lie. He knew it was a lie, but he didn't know how it was a lie. And Adam figured out how it was a lie. And Adam also knew that God had a solution to it that Satan hadn't thought of. But again, not the angels, not Satan, not the woman, the man only. And thus this unique statement about Adam. Behold, the man has become like one of us. And we'll break that down. We'll break down the five things. There's five things. The behold is a thing. The man is a thing that has become and the like and the one of us. Okay, I make that one thing. So I have to solve the triunity of God. I have to have a good explanation of what like means because you cannot be the same as, can you? You must portray it in some way because that's God. You cannot be God, you cannot be the same as God, but you have something that points to God in some way. And become implies that he wasn't always there. Something got him there. So I have to know what made him this way. And then it's the man by himself singularly. Why the man? What did he do? Five things that must be studied, something we will endeavor to do next week even um, when more time is available. I know I promised people that I was focusing on Adam and Eve's sin this week. I just didn't be, I wasn't able to do it because I don't have the time to do it today. Okay. Also from last Sunday was a question of physical properties and mental properties. And now I'm going to go really fast so that we can have a buffet before the people, the baby shower people come and kick us out. 
physical properties, mental properties. As you know, the monistic philosophers insist. Those are the people that say that we are only one, there's only one part to us. We are only physical. There is no spiritual part, just a physical part. Those are monistic philosophers, and they insist that mental properties emerge from a physical process. And though, in other words, they're emergent out of a physical system. And though mental properties possess no physical characteristics at all, none. Let me repeat that. Mental properties, your mental thought processes, your feelings, love, ideas, memories, they contain or they have no physical characteristics, none. And though mental properties are not reducible, in other words, I cannot reduce a thought process to a particle. I can't say that thought process is made out of an atom and electron, neutrons, protons, quarks. There's no particle in a thought, a mental property. Not reducible. Cannot be reduced. Mental properties have no location, they have no size, they have no weight, they have no volume, etc., right? Nonetheless, that being true, modern evolutionary philosophy declares mental properties to be, a, to be physical. Even though they have no physical characteristics at all, they say they're physical nonetheless. Now, they don't know how and they don't know why. They don't have any way of doing it, but they, they, and they can't conceive of a way or explain or describe how in any way, but they, uh, never mind all of that, they're resolute that... Uh, the mind is somehow a physical entity, and that it emerges from the physical brain. Now, that's, uh, so that's ironic off the bat. You've heard me say this many times. That which supposedly emerges from the physical brain matter immediately does what to the physical brain matter? Supposedly, the physical brain matter causes the mind to emerge from it, according to evolutionary philosophy. And then what happens? As soon as the mind comes out of the physical matter of the brain, what does the mind do? It seizes control of the brain and is now in charge. That can't be explained. That's a phenomenon, a universal phenomenon that is unexplainable in physical terms. Anyway, I digress. Physicalists or materialists or reductionism or reductionists or monists or monism or evolutionists or evolutionism, whatever, they're all one and the same. They, those folks are certain of one thing, and that is this. Mankind, given enough time, will eventually prove that we will cease to exist upon death. That is what they're trying to prove to you. Understand that. That is the core of evolutionary monistic philosophy. They are certain that you and me and them, when we die, will cease to exist. That's what they're all about. That's all they really wish to do is prove that. If they prove it, they accomplish something significant, by the way, philosophically as well as morally. But anyway, they want to prove that we cease to exist upon physical death. And I know, yes, I know, the definition of existence requires immortality. There's no such thing as cease to exist. I know that. They don't. Or they won't acknowledge it. And right now, by the way, they can't prove that you will cease to exist. They can't prove they will cease to exist or that anything ceases to exist because, again, existence requires immortality. But I'm breaking down. But they, uh, so they, they can't prove it, so what do they have? They don't have any proof. What do they got? They got faith. 
they're certain that they're going to prove it. So they believe that they're going to, they're going to cease to exist, and so do you. And, and that's why they love time. Absolutely love time. Every time huh, I get in a debate with an evolutionist, the first thing he tells me is pretty soon we're going to prove it. We're going to prove enough time, we're going to prove we cease to exist. They don't always say it that way, but once I, I goad them into it, they will. And they love time, and they use time to solve everything that confounds them. Evolutionary monists worship time. Time is their sacrament. They need it, and they know they need it. So that's why we always end up in discussions about Einstein's uh, special relativity and general relativity. Now, out of this, this line of thought comes their solution for evil. If they can prove with enough time that they're going to cease to exist and that you're going to cease to exist, then here comes their solution for evil. Do you see how that fits? Do you see yet how Genesis 3:20 20 through 24, what I brought up, and, and, and their idea that they're going to have a solution for evil given enough time are at absolute opposites? I hope it's starting to clear up for you. It should be obvious. Anyway, if not, I'll keep going. Anyway, the monists have faith. They believe, and by the way, faith and belief are non-physical entities, right? But they do. They have faith and they have belief, that, and they have it with great passion that in a, after a period of time, a physical solution to the physical manifestation of evil will be attained. In other words, they're going to solve with a physical process uh, the revelation of physical evil, which is, as you know, if I do something evil, let's say I have the holy dry erase pen and I throw it at the forehead of somebody who is asleep, Talia immediately woke up. And I hit her in the forehead. Some might consider that to be evil. I wouldn't. I would consider that a, a great display of physical uh, uh, athleticism. Note the physical part. They will say that eventually there's going to be, an, we're going to be able to keep Chronister from throwing things at people. We will have a solution to his evil. Or any evil, all evil. By the way, we're going to have to define evil. We're going to have to know the difference between good and evil. So far, only one human being has ever got anywhere close to that. Do you want Aldous Huxley, who was, uh, was pretty well convinced that pedophilia was okay? Do you want him deciding what is evil? He's the great evolutionary philosopher. In other words, let me do it another way. With the passage of their beloved time, humanity will eradicate evil. Humanity is going to come up with a solution. They're going to solve it. Man will solve and eradicate all bad things and, and will provide the solution to evil by himself. Science will prevail. Man, and they also tell you, by the way, given enough time, science will prove everything. I always ask him how much time you need. I got a half hour. How much you need? A billion years? Trillions of years? They have absolutely convinced themselves that science will prevail and mankind will save himself from evil given enough time. Again, note the absolute polar opposite thinking that is Romans 3:10 to 
through 18, Romans 1, 17, Genesis 3, 20 through 24, Genesis 15, etc. Man will save himself, they will say. Man will solve death, man will end death, man will end sin, he will end evil, and he'll do it by himself through science, through his own wisdom, through his own scientific means, okay? And that, by the way, is the perfect, absolute perfect contradiction of what? You can't get more contradictory with that statement than what? The Bible. Man will save himself and solve evil is the absolute perfect opposite of what the Bible says. That's not happenstance. Sinful humanity or sinful human thought is consistent and predictable. So how is it that man will end evil? And how will they do it? Have you heard them tell you? They write me letters. We're going to end evil. How are we going to do it? Well, neuroscience. Neurology. Brain surgery. That's how we're going to do it. Removing physical matter from the brain that is causing the offensive action. Again, who do you want making the decision? The federal government? Deciding what's evil and what part of your brain they should remove to stop you from believing or doing or acting in certain ways. They'd cut my whole brain out, wouldn't they? Some of you think they have already. But they, that's how they're going to solve evil, by removing physical matter from the brain. By the way, is this a new thought? No, they've been around a long time. Removing physical matter from the brain that is causing the evil, or re regulating the evil with other means. What means are they going to regulate the evil? We, maybe we can't completely destroy the evil, but we're going to regulate it. How are we going to regulate it? Pharmaceuticals, absolutely. Drugs are going to be the answer. What we call more dope. Now, aside again from the obvious jokes about me being lobotomized and sedated, this behavioral intervention thought process is now commonplace. I was a teacher. As you know, Bill was a teacher when I was thinking about being a teacher. Uh, but uh, I was in the PE department, I was in the math departments and electrical physics, and they didn't give me very many what you would call easily teachable kids. They gave me the worst of the worst. Um, and I took them all. That was how I thought. Make the application to the church congregation. Never mind. But we used to as teachers not that long ago, because I'm not that old, and certainly Bill and I won't admit to being that old, but... Uh, not, it wasn't that long ago that a child that was loud and aggressive and disruptive and distracted and twitching and breaking things and dirty, we used to call that what? A boy. That's what we did. Okay? Now, that's attention deficit disorder. And what does the system do to them? Drugs them in order to control their what? Their bad stuff. Who determined that that was bad? The system, somebody determined that this was bad and we needed to regulate it and, and sedate them. How's that working out? I mean, that's, that is a, an awful, awful thing to do. And it is having catastrophic impact. And do you, have you begun to recognize or see the motive behind this yet? The agenda, besides the money, there's the philosophy. 
The philosophy being that no one is responsible for free will decisions. That's ultimately what they're doing because they believe they're going to prove that you cease to exist. And if they prove you cease to exist, then they prove that you have no free will. And if you have no free will, then we can't judge you for that in any way. What we have, they will tell you, is merely uh, non-functioning or dysfunctioning, uh, dysfunctional physical systems that can be removed or chemically disabled and controlled, which makes perfect sense to the evolutionary monist philosopher, or the evolutionist. Those are the ones that assert that we are comprised of only physical processes. And if we only have physical processes, uh, we only have physical solutions. Physical processes, by definition, by the way, if you, as you study it, you will find that uh, physical processes cannot have any free will or any will of any kind. Therefore, no accountability, no morality, no purpose, just random coincidences. Evolutionary monism is very clear. They don't stutter here. They say without equivocation that there is no good, no evil, and there is no such thing as knowing good from evil which is how we started the lecture, with God declaring that the man has become like one of us, knowing good from evil. But the monists say there's no such thing as knowing the difference between good and evil because there is no difference between good and evil. There is just physical processes, random, purposeless physical processes that will cease to exist upon physical death. Okay? How long have we been teaching this in school? time. You know, I made the comment to Bill driving to the job site the other day. If I wanted to destroy somebody, I would take their guns away from them. I would take their school system and make it worthless. And then I would give them stuff for doing nothing. And I would, at the end of that process, after a few generations, have a complete mess and we can call that the cities of this country. But I would first start out to tell them that they will cease to exist when they die. And there is no accountability. There is no right. There is no wrong. There is no creator. There is no justice. There is no judgment. There is nothing but physical processes. So we ask the obvious question. We ask them the obvious question. Why do they seek to control any behavior? If there no behavior has any difference, why do you try to control it? They seem to imply that the very existence of evil uh, is a contradiction for them because they should say, well, there is no evil. They should not seek to control it. But they do seek to control it, don't they? Well, because they what? They love to control. And by the way, everybody that loves to control does what generally? That's right. They become pastors, government workers, politicians. You need to be suspicious of these guys. And women, you do. You know, what was Reagan's thing? The, the, you know, beware of the person that says, hi, I'm from the government. I've come to help you. No, they've come to control you. Because they've decided your behavior has to be controlled. Anyway. In the coming weeks, we're going to be studying Wilder Penfield. As I said in the introduction to those who are not listening by Internet, the advantage they get. 
I'm starting to do that, by the way, to make it advantageous to come here instead of just listening on the Internet um, by doing things that are off the record um, before and afterwards. But uh, that'll be more so. In the coming work weeks, we're going to be studying Wilder uh, Penfield, the renowned neuroscientist, the brain surgeon, who actually operated on conscious, awake patients in an attempt to lessen their epileptic seizures. He would remove part of their skull cap or their skull and probe their brain matter with electrical uh, circuit or electrical impulses. And while he's doing that, he would ask them questions and they would answer. So he would be trying to, to affect what they're going to do and he would fight with them for control over their physical responses while he is asking them questions. In other words, he would move their right arm. You heard me talk about this at Christmas. He would move their right arm and ask them who moved it. And they would answer him, you moved it. And that's a profound thing. There are two non-physical entities fighting over control of a physical entity. And what's going on there is astonishing, and we're going to do that. As you can imagine, Wilder Penfield wrote a book, and I intend to get them and pass them out. One review went something like this. Read this book in a very quiet place. Another one went, then read it again and again and then once more. Does that remind you of Edgar Andrews? It's not going to be simple. Wilder Penfield was a deep thinking man who concluded amazing things. First among them was Though it was possible to affect motor responses, he could affect the movements and the speech and the sight and the smell uh, with electrical impulses and other things as well. Okay? But one thing he concluded is that nowhere, nowhere in the brain, nowhere in the brain matter, the brain material, in the gray matter, if you will, there is no place in the brain where decisions are made. He could find, he could move your leg, he could move your hand, he could move your ear, your nose, he could move anything. But he could not find and did not find where you were making decisions. He could see the physical result of the decision, but he could not affect your decision making. How come he could not affect your decision making? Yeah, decision making is non-physical. Movement is physical. That's a manifestation of a decision. It's not the decision. It's the revelation of the decision. It isn't the decision. Nowhere in the brain, in the physical matter, is there a place where decisions are made. Okay? I can't repeat that enough. Nowhere in the physical brain, the machine that is the brain, is a place that controls free will decisions or choices. It's not there. Is that a surprise to me? No, not a surprise to me. The Bible is as clear as it can be. Scripture says that decisions, that choices are a spiritual property, a mental property. They're non-physical. They have no physical characteristics. And that is the fatal flaw for those who seek a physical solution, a pill or a surgery to evil. Evil thoughts are non-physical. You may control the revelation of them, but you can't control them. You can mess with somebody pretty well. You can confuse people. But evil decisions are not located in the physical brain. 
The body only reveals the thoughts. So, where are the thoughts? If there's no place in the physical brain where they can be affected and they're non-physical, where are they? And then the next question, what are they made of? Which is you? The brain or the decision-making? See, you're the reader of the brain. You're the actuation of the brain. You are not the brain. And that's where we're going in the coming weeks, along with more Adam, Eve, Satan, and angels and animals and assorted other things that we have to do with it. Let's rise and be dismissed.